Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. And I want to make, uh, since we have some new people, uh, we do a, a messaging kind of service just to remind people that, that we're meeting. If there's something that changes, if uh, for whatever reason we move or a different location for the day or something like that, I'm able to send out a text and alert people that... Um, that we've changed spots or that we're meeting tonight or that we remind you guys that we have a special event scheduled, things like that. If you want to get those texts, you text uh, the number 59769. It's the same number that they use downstairs, 59769. And the message that you send is CCEA devoted, all one word. And it'll enroll you in our text group. Um, it's not like a group text where we're all just in one message thing and one person messages and everybody gets it and all that. Um, those things drive me nuts. So you only get one message. It's from me. You can't respond. So it's a one-way street, but it's a good way for me to be able to communicate with you and let you know what's going on. So if you want uh, that and you want some help setting it up, talk to me uh, after the message and I'd be happy to help you uh, get involved with that. Uh, we will be having some events coming up uh, next month, uh, some fellowship activities and uh, an outreach uh, opportunity. Um, so uh, I'm excited about that. And um, yeah, we're just excited that you're here and we're excited to get into God's word. So if you open up your Bible to, to Genesis chapter one, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So. How was your guys? How was the ladies' discussion? Was it good? Awesome. Praise God. Let me pray for us, and then uh, then we'll get in. Father, I just uh, right now acknowledge our need for you, Lord. Uh, we know that you inspired this Bible. You need to illuminate it if we're going to get anything out of it, Lord. And and I need you. I need your Spirit to to be able to prophesy to speak it in a way that's bold and clear and profitable. So. We utterly need you right now, and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. We want your wisdom. We want the wisdom from above. We want your direction. We want to know how to, to live out this life in a way that honors you. And so much of that comes down to the foundations that are taught in these 11 chapters of Genesis, Lord. So I pray that you would teach us, that you would be our teach us, teacher tonight, that you would speak to us, Lord. We'd hear from you. We'd be changed by your word. And we'd leave here more apt to love and to serve you. So we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we got, we began our journey, right? We piled into our Winnebago and we started heading down Route 66. We didn't make it very far, maybe, maybe one or two exits, but we saw some uh, important ground along the way. It was absolutely foundational ground for us to take in if we're going to be able to get anything out of the rest of the journey, right? It's kind of like one of those things. You got to see the opening scenes of the movie. Otherwise the rest of the movie isn't going to make any sense. And that's essentially what these 11 chapters of Genesis are. If you weren't here last week and you want to see the message, talk to Ryan, he'll tell you how to get it online and be able to stream it that way. Uh, but we're going to review some of that tonight, and I don't think you'll be too far behind by the end of the message tonight. You know, last week we began uh, covering the the creation of the heavens and the earth. We looked at what was called origins, 
That's really what the book of Genesis is about. It's the origin of, of pretty much everything, right? We have the origin of the heavens and the earth, the origin of man, the origin of woman, the, the origin of marriage, the, the origin of sin, right? The, the, the origin of, uh, of judgment, the, the origin of uh, different races and things like that. We're going to see the origin of the people of God, starting with Abraham next week. But we really have the origin of just about everything in the book of Genesis. And I mentioned that it's, it's absolutely fundamental that we get this down. If we don't get these origins down, we're not going to be able to have right doctrine going forward. And it's going to greatly affect the way that we live our life. In fact, you could look about just about every practice that's wrong in the world today. And Genesis 1 through 11 has the answer for that. Whether it's marriage or gender or the race issues or, or whatever it is, it's spoken of of Genesis 1 through 11. The Hebrew title for this first book of the Bible is Bereshit. Uh, Bereshit, it literally means in the beginning. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible starts Bereshit Elohim, in the beginning, God. I mentioned last week that those might be the most important words in all of Scripture, because if we could get those four words down, if we could learn to trust that in the beginning it was God and everything else came from him, it was designed by him and for him and to him and through him, like it says in Colossians 1, we'll have no problem with the rest of Scripture. right? But we need to start there. We need to start with God. And this book of Genesis, it really divides into two sections. We have chapters 1 through 11 is the first section, and chapters 12 through 50 covering the second section. In Genesis 1 through 11, it's pretty much talking about four great events, uh, the four events that we're going to talk about tonight. And then in chapters 12 through 50, it's going to talk about four great people. So we have four great events and four great people. You know, there's people like uh, Ken Ham that have spent their entire life just studying this first 11 chapters of Genesis. I mean, they've made that their life calling is to learn this, to study it deep and to teach it so that it can impact us and explain how God worked in creating the universe and whatnot. Have any of you guys been to the Creation Museum or the Ark in, uh, in, in Kentucky? Yeah, I, I really want to go there. But yeah, Ken Ham's got some great materials. Answers in Genesis is a great site to go to, to, to get some of these questions answered. But in chapters 1 through 11, we're going to talk about these four great events, creation, corruption, condemnation, and confusion. In chapters 1 through 11, we see God created everything. And it's very good. But then the serpent Eve tempts the serpent tempts Eve and sin enters the picture. From chapters three to eleven, we see the devastating effects of that sin and the downward spiral that it brings upon humanity. Chapter twelve, though, God starts his plan of bringing about a new creation through a single family in which all the earth is going to be blessed through Abraham. But tonight we're going to look at these four great events. So for letter A, God created the universe and it was very good. Fill in the word created. And we see this in chapters one and two. 
In five guys, in five days, in five guys, I'm hungry. In five days, God creates and forms the world, and then he decorates the world with plants and animals. And then on day six, he populates the earth. He, he starts putting his image bearers, people on the earth to populate it and to have dominion over it. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish, the sea, over the birds, the sky, and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. I mentioned last week that man is distinct from the rest of creation by the fact that we're created in the image of God. Now, if you're going to read through this creation account, you'll find that God repeatedly calls his creation good. In fact, seven times he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, culminating in it is very good. Now, seven is the number of completeness. Or, or, or completion in the Bible. So in a sense, he's looking at his creation. He's looking at everything he made, and he's saying, man, it is completely good. Everything about it is good. There isn't one thing wrong or bad with it. And then in chapter 2, he starts retelling this creation account from a slightly different perspective, and it gives us a bit more detail. Uh, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says... Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. See, God had created man, and then he created a, a, a perfect, luscious garden for man to live in. He gave man the responsibility of tending the garden and also naming and ruling over the animal kingdom. And as Adam is naming these animals, he's coming to realize that there isn't a compliment, someone, an animal to compliment or to suit him. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not going to work. So God puts Adam to sleep and from his rib, he creates woman to be a helpmate for him. Now, I know for our culture, this sounds a little bit off, right? Calling the woman the help, the helpmate, like, you know, if, if you're married or that, and you, you go out and someone you're know, introducing, yeah, I'm Joe, and this is the help, you know, it's probably not going to go over very well. Right? I mean, that's not the most romantic thing that you could say. Our, our, our culture tends to look at it like you're saying, hey, this is my assistant, right? But we need to realize this, that God calls himself the help. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That word help, it's the exact same Hebrew word speaking of the woman in chapter 2. Remember in the upper room, Jesus, he's given the upper room discourse. It's the night before he's going to go to the cross, and the disciples are sad. And he's telling them, hey, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, then I could send the Holy Spirit. And he could come and he'll be with you and he'll be in you. And Jesus in that message, he, he calls the Holy Spirit the helper. Right? The, that the, the Spirit, God's going to come and he's going to be a helper. Right? Uh, so, so calling someone the, the help, when we look at it from the perspective that God calls himself the help, isn't as demeaning. 
But I think we could turn this whole thing around, really. It, it, it's not denigrating to women at all. I think it speaks less of the man than the woman. It's as if God created man. And he's looking around, and he's like, everything's good. Everything's perfect. And he's like, hey, there's just something wrong with this man. You know, there's just, it, it's just not, there's, there's something missing. I know what he needs. He needs help. I'm going to give him a woman, <laughs> you know, and that's going to fix everything, right? So, so it's not as bad as it thinks. You know, women and men were created equal in God's eyes. We're equally created in God's image. We're equal in redemption. It's not like Jesus said more blood for the man than he did the woman. That doesn't make any sense. And we're equal in gifting. Every child of God has been given a gift, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, that includes man and woman. And, and there's a purpose for us in the body of Christ to serve and to flourish and to use that gift. So God sees us both equally. There's not one that's more. But we're equal, but we're different. God designed us differently so we would complement each other, that we'd be fully able to reflect God's image when we're in right relationship with each other. So God's first act was creating the heavens and the earth and filling the earth, especially with his image bearers. Now in chapter three, right, we're going to go from this perfect scenario, being in the garden and just man and woman together, enjoying each other, to what I call paradise lost. Paradise gain is going to become paradise lost. So for letter B, uh, I guess we have them backwards here, uh, fill in the word gain and lost. Paradise gain becomes paradise lost. We're going to see man's going to sin and he's going to bring corruption to God's creation. We're going to see this in chapters three through six. Now, chapter three is a, a little odd. It begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So all of a sudden, there's this serpent on the scene, and we learn that he is more crafty or more subtle than all the creation or than all the creatures on the earth. And he's coming to Eve, and, and he's able to talk. And, and he's tempting Eve to not believe the words of God, to, to compromise the word of God, to eat the thing that God has commanded her not to eat. Now, this word serpent isn't necessarily the best translation of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word behind serpent is actually the shining one. Shining ones is, is the literal translation. Now, or if you're a Bible scholar, the verse that should be popping off in your head is 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14. Right? Paul says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's speaking all the way back to the first mention of Satan in Genesis 3, chapter 1. You know, Satan's not going to come to us and try to tempt us looking like this big red menace with horns and a pitchfork. He's not trying to be this boogeyman and freak us out. That's not how he works. I know that's the way he's portrayed on TV. No, he's going to come looking attractive with seductive speech and temptation. This is why it's so important that we know our Bibles and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if not, our faith's not going to be 
much better than Eve's. We too will succumb to the temptation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his schemes or his devices. Through the Bible, we get to see the way that the enemy's worked in the past, the way that he's tempted people in the past, the way that he has had victory over us in the past. And we could know that those are the ways that he's going to tempt us now. And we could be on the guard. We could recognize his attack and we could, you know, not give in to it. James says that we're to resist the devil, stand firm in the faith, and he will flee from us. Right? But we're not going to be able to do that if we don't recognize him for the devil. Remember, he's coming disguised as an angel of light. So Satan tempts Eve with the forbidden fruit, and Eve sees that it's good for food, that it's a delight for the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. So she ate immediately. Her and Adam knew something changed. They noticed they're naked. They cover themselves with fig leaves and they hid themselves from God and from each other. Now, a couple of, uh, not a couple, nine kind of applications or things I want us to see here before we move on in this section is, first one is God had a plan for sin from the beginning. Look at verses eight and nine. Right? They, they sin, they, they eat the plant, they're hiding from each other, they're covering up their sin with the fig leaves. And then it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he uh, has a book called uh, Lectures for My Students, where you know, Charles was a, he was the prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers there was, but he also had a school where he trained other preachers. And on this verse, he said this, if you could read that verse, you don't read it with the voice of an arresting officer, right? But you read it with the voice of a brokenhearted father, right? God wasn't chasing Adam down to say, what'd you do? And to punish him and to rub his nose in his sin and, and to make him feel bad. No, Adam, God was chasing Adam down and trying to find Adam to get him to repent, to get him to confess his sins, to, to get right with God. And I guarantee you this, whenever you sin, you, you, you might feel condemnation. That's not from God, for there is no, for, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, the devil might try to condemn you. It's not from God. You see, but God will come and he'll try to convict you. Because he wants to get you to the place to repent, to get right with him, and to be restored to a right relationship with him. So we need to know whenever we've sinned, whenever we blow it, and, 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 and we're feeling guilty, we're, we're, we're feeling the effects of it, know that God is pursuing us. God is chasing us down. God wants us to repent and to be restored to him. Second is God forgives our sin, but there's still consequences. So someone forgives and consequences. So God's going to meet with Adam and Eve, and he's going to, you know, uh, he, he's going to give them a covering, right? He, he's going to kill an animal. He's going to, you know, take those fig leaves off and put a covering on him. He's going to pronounce the first gospel. Adam and Eve are going to believe in it. They're going to be forgiven. They're going to be restored to fellowship with God, but there's still going to be consequences. They're still going to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Right? They're still going to have to live with the fallen nature. 
They're, they're going to have to endure great consequences from their sin. Yeah, every sin that we commit is going to be forgiven. It's already forgiven in the past. But that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for it. That doesn't mean it's not going to bring negative things into our life. It's not doesn't mean it's not going to ruin our relationships with God and with other people. The wages of sin is death. You know, death to opportunities, death to relationships. You know, just death in any way, in every way possible. There is going to be consequences for our sins. We see here that there's consequences for the woman. There'll be pain and childbearing. Their desire will be over their husband, but they're going to be in a submissive role to their husband. For the man, the, the, the consequences are that work's going to be hard. Up until that point, work was a breeze. Did it in the breeze of the garden. But tilling the soil will produce thorns and thistles. He's going to earn bread to eat by the sweat of his brow. And there's going to be death. But to the serpent, He's going to be relegated to crawl on his belly and eat dirt. One day the seed of the woman will crush its head. You know, the consequences of sin were initiated over 6,000 years ago. And we're still dealing with them today. If you think about it. This should tell us that we need to take sin seriously. The consequences of sin are seriously. They'll affect those around us and ourselves in a great way for a great long time, if we don't. Number three, God provides a way of redemption. Fill in the word redemption. So in the serpent's part of the curse, verse 15, uh, you might want to just circle or highlight this verse. This is kind of the theme verse for chapters 1 through 11. If there's one verse I'd recommend that you memorize in chapters 1 through 11, it would be this verse. This verse is going to be kind of the base of all Old Testament theology. But right when there's a, a sin, God comes and provides the answer. And it actually is in the curse. In the curse of the serpent, God gives what is called the proto-euangelion, or the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill or on the heel. And the Lord illustrates this promise by killing an animal and making a covering out of it for the man and the woman. Like I said, this verse is super important for our theology, especially Old Testament theology. It's a belief or a trust in this promise that all men have been saved. Every person that's been saved, it's has been believing in some form of this promise in reality. You know, sometimes I talk to people and they had the idea that the Old Testament saints got saved one way and the New Testament saints get saved in a different way. They think in the Old Testament, people got saved by keeping the law, by being a, a good rule follower. Whereas in the New Testament, we're saved by grace through believing in Jesus Christ. Well, that's not true at all. Everybody that's been saved, it's been saved the same way. You know that verse that uh, the, the, the just shall live by faith? Three times in the New Testament we find that in Romans and Galatians and places like that. Well, that actually originated in the Old Testament. 
In Habakkuk 2.4, it says, but the righteous will live by his faith. If you want to be just, you want to be righteous, it's going to come through faith. It's going to come from believing in the promise that God has revealed, that he will send somebody who will crush this head of the serpent and bring about deliverance. You know, I like to look at it this way. The Old Testament saints were saved by credit and were saved by debit. You know, I could go buy something. I, I actually just bought a, a new Apple Watch. I'm waiting for it to get delivered. And I paid for it with my credit card, right? And so I gave them my number, and it was a promissory note saying, hey, I'm going to pay for this in the future. Now, I could have paid for it with my debit card, and that would have taken the money that I had already deposited and used it to accredit me for the purchase, right? Now, that's essentially how salvation works in the Old and the New Testament. The people in the Old Testament, they're getting saved on credit. They're getting saved by belief in what Jesus is going to pay for in the future. Whereas the New Testament saints, we're getting saved by debit, by believing in what Jesus has paid for in the past. But the way that all people are saved is by believing the promise that the seed of the woman, the supernatural one coming from the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, that is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one can boast. It didn't change in the New Testament. But we also see in Genesis 3, 15, that there would be this ongoing struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between the people of God or the righteous, they're going to be at enmity or opposition with the enemies of God. Right? The, the, the demons, the fallen angels, the, the unregenerate are going to be at odds with us, the angels, and with God. And this is what's going to get played out at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Cain. And he said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Uh, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought, in, uh, brought of the first flings of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So apparently God had revealed how man was to worship him, right? Uh, apparently God had revealed to Adam and to his kids the right way that he wanted to be worshipped. Uh, we're not told how that was in the Bible. We're just told that these two brothers brought their worship and God accepted one and didn't accept the other. This is what we call the regulative principle of worship. The Bible regulates how we are to worship God. 
We don't get to worship God however we want. We need to worship God in the way that God has prescribed us to worship him. I remember when I, I was still kind of in the world and things like that, I used to tell my mom that I don't need to go to church. I worship God at the gym. But it's while I'm lifting weights and running on the treadmill and things like, I don't run on the treadmill, I walk on the treadmill. But as I'm walking on the treadmill, I'm kind of connecting with God and whatnot. You know, that's not true. You need to go to church. You need to worship God the way that God has prescribed himself to be worshiped. Yeah, you could worship him while you're working out, but that doesn't mean you get to skip out on the ways that he has told us to worship him. You know, there's a hint about why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11.4, in the Hall of Faith, it says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that, was, that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Right, so, so God is accepting Abel's sacrifice because it is by faith. You see, I believe this. I believe that after God slayed the animal to provide the covering for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he explained to him that we, he wanted an animal sacrifice. He wanted a blood sacrifice, right? The, the soul that sins shall die. There needs to be blood. It's, it's through the shedding of blood that there's forgiveness of sins, and I think that Abel just said, hey, I'm a keeper of the flock. I'm going to bring my flock, and or I'm a keeper of the ground. I'm going to bring my fruit, and it's just going to be good. And in essence, he's just bringing the fig leaves that Adam and Eve had brought before. This story, though, there's some other great truths that we need to consider. The first one is, is God has a cure for depression. Fill in the word depression in chapter, in verse for number four. Right? God comes to Cain and he says, why has your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed? Why are you angry? Don't you know if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up? But if you don't, that sin is crouching at you, that, for you at the door and you must be master over it? Right. So we see here that really the cure for depression, this isn't all the time. There's such thing as clinical depression and there's people that need to take medicine. But it just grieves me at how many Christians are just just swallowing pills and doing who knows what to not be sad. God says, hey, if you worship me the right way, if you just do it, what is right in worshiping me in your right relationship with me, that's going to take care of most of it. Like I said, there's some people that, you know, that they need to take that and that's good for them. It's not sin, but we need to examine first before we get there. Am I doing what God says? Am I in right relationship with God? We need to explore that avenue before we explore the avenue of, you know, secular therapists and pills and things like that. So if you are sad, if you are feeling depressed, if you are angry at your brother, stop and think, hey, am I right with God? Am I worshiping God the way that God wants me to worship him? And I'm pretty sure that that more often than not will be a cure you know, one thing I like to do when I start to feel myself getting angry or upset or depressed, things like that, is I start just going through the alphabet. And for each letter, I start thinking of something that starts with for Jesus, that stands for Jesus, usually things that are biblical. Well, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. 
He's the beginning and the end. He's the chief's cornerstone. He's the daysman. He's my everlasting father. He's the finisher of my faith. He's my good shepherd. He's human. He's, He's impeccable. He's just and the justifier of those that believe. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's my bright and shining morning star. And I can go on and on. And, and by the time I'm done doing that, my mind is just so full of Jesus that I'm not angry. I'm not depressed. It's been taken away. So God has a cure for your depression. Number five, you are your brother's keeper. Fill in the word keeper. Look at verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? Uh, The answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. If you look in the laws, we'll get there when we get into Exodus and Deuteronomy and that, there's all these laws that say, hey, if you see some stray, you know, calf walking through the camp, you need to take it and find out who it is and and bring it back to your brother. If you don't know who it is, you need to keep it until somebody comes and says, hey, has anybody found a calf? And then you could restore it to your brother. Over and over again, there's, Laws like that, illustrating the fact that we are to be our brother's keeper. We're to make sure things go well for each other. Galatians 6 1 says this, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. So we see someone who's not right with the Lord. We need to go and, and try to restore him and get him right with the Lord. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if anyone sins against you, you need to go and confront them in private. You need to, you need to resolve that. You need to be your brother's keeper and get them back on track. Number six, God is a God of justice. Fill in the word justice. Look at verse 10. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Blood of Abel cries out to God. This is always the case. The blood of the innocent cries for justice. It it, it always is. Even all the way into the tribulation period, the saints that are martyred for their faith in Christ during the tribulation, listen to what it says of them in Revelation 6, 9. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of their testimony, which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The blood, the innocent blood is crying out for justice. And God's holiness demands that he provides it. So for us, we need to make sure that you know, that God's justice on our life has been poured out on Christ on the cross. Otherwise, it's one day going to be poured out on us. But we also need to be people that are just and treat people justly and fairly and do what is right by God. In verses 11 through 16, we're going to see that God is going to punish Cain for what he did. He says, now you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wonder on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. 
Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. People often wonder, Oh, I'm sorry. So Cain's going to go on. Uh, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain's going to go out and he's going to build this city called Nob. Nob literally means wanderer. There in Nob, we'll see that Cain's descendants become a city of wanderers. That is a city that doesn't know God. You know, sin is really, really awful. Sin brings about what's called entropy. It goes from bad to worse. It, it expands. It goes deeper and it spreads wider than we could ever imagine. And this is the case with Cain's family. They're just going to be a bunch of wanderers in this city that they built. Uh, number seven, fill in, let Cain be a warning for us. For us. In verse 15, it talks about, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14 how uh, God appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. And people often wonder what the mark of Cain was. Uh, we don't know. God doesn't tell us what it is. Whatever we say, it's going to be speculative. We just know that there was some mark that God put on Cain to protect him so that people would know not to kill him. But what's interesting to me is that Cain becomes a mark or a sign warning us, New Testament believers. In 1 John 3.11, it says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for that reason, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In Jude 10 and 11, or sorry, Jude 11, it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And they have, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. So Cain's mistake becomes a warning for us in the New Testament, right? We know that, hey, God's going to punish people for what Cain did, and we don't want to have that same consequences come upon us. Number eight, we don't want to mistake God's material provision for his approval. Don't mistake God's material provision for his approval. So don't fill in mistake and approval. Cain's family, they're going to go down to Nob, and it's going to appear that they're blessed. In verse 17, it says, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and they built a city called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So they build a city. They're, uh, you know, they become city dwellers. They're the city planners, I guess you could say. In verse 20, it says, Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So they became ranchers. You know, they're, they're blessed. They have this ranching business. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. They start inventing musical instruments. They start playing music, having concerts, things like that. 
Verse 22, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. They invent bronze, iron, no doubt making weapons of warfare. These things are very, very profitable. So it sounds like God's blessing them. His material blessing is upon Cain and his family there in the city of Nob. But we know his family line isn't walking with the Lord. You know, the, the line of Cain, it crescendos at this guy named Lamech. Lamech is, is absolutely bonkers nuts in every way imaginable. Look at what it says in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. So he's committed, he's in polygamy. He's the starter of polygamy. He's committed two murders. And then he says this, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77fold. It's almost like he's bragging that, hey, I'm more degenerate than Cain. My father Cain was. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of nuts. It's a weird way to think. But the Bible talks about God's common grace. And in some way, the fact is, is God blesses everyone. You know, Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In fact, in, in some ways, the, the unrighteous in some ways seem more blessed than the righteous sometimes. But it's a mistake to think that just because you're blessed in some way, that God approves of your behavior, right? Because here, they're obviously not living for the Lord, even though the Lord is giving them material blessing. In Psalm 73, the, the psalmist is really going to struggle with this. Listen to what it says. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease, and they have increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have stricken all day long, and chasten every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Now, the end of Cain isn't going to be good. The end of Cain's family isn't going to be good. Right? And we need to remember that. Right? There's no need to be jealous of the rich on earth that don't know the Lord because we have something that's infinitely more valuable than what they have. Number nine, God gets his people out before the judgment falls. In verse 21, uh, we get introduced to this interesting guy named Enoch. It says Enoch lived 65 years and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years, and after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 300 years and 65 years. Here it is, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, Enoch really is a picture of the rapture, or a type of the rapture. Noah is a picture or a type of God preserving the, a remnant of the Jews, the 144,000 through the Great Tribulation. Now, we don't believe in the rapture because of the story of Enoch. No, we, we don't use typology in that way. We believe in the rapture because of 
what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be harpazo, will be caught up, will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. That's why we believe in the rapture, because it's explicitly taught in the New Testament in three different places. But when we look at it in the Old Testament, we see this typology that God's going to rapture. He's going to take up the righteous Enoch before his judgment's going to fall in the next chapter. And Lot's going to be a picture of those that God's going to preserve the the children of Israel through the seven-year tribulation period and on into the millennial kingdom. But we see from Enoch and from this story that God is going to rescue the righteous before the judgment falls. In chapter 5, we really have the descendants of Adam going all the way down to Noah. So there's this contrast. We have the wicked descendants of Cain contrasted with the righteous descendants of Adam going on to Noah. For letter C, uh, fill in the word condemnation. God brings condemnation upon a rebellious people. That's what we're going to see in chapters 6 through 9. You know, there's going to be this great flood that's going to come upon the earth and judge the earth and kill everybody. That's the condemnation that God's going to bring. But for the first point I want us to see is God wants his people pure. He needed a pure line to bring the Messiah through. Chapter 6, verse 1, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever because he is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So there's this debate about the sons of God and the daughters of man. Some say that it's uh, the, the, the sons of God are the, uh, the godly line of Seth and the daughters of man are the, the line of Cain. And they kind of had this mixed marriage with unbelievers, right? They're unequally yoked. And that's what was causing the problem. Others say, no, the Bena Elohim, the sons of God, are really angels. That's the way that they're used in other places in the scriptures. And these fallen angels are coming down and somehow cohabiting with women and corrupting the line. Now, the important thing, whatever way it is, is that God wants us to be pure. He wants to have a pure line. You know, what's going to bring the judgment, I think, here in chapter 6 and 7, is that the, the line of the righteous is being tainted. And God knows that, hey, I'm going to bring the Messiah through this line. I need this line to be pure if the Messiah is going to be able to come through it. It can't be tainted. It can't be a corrupted line of people, right? And and so for us, God wants us to be that same way. Point number two, God wanted future generations to know who the giants really are or were. Fill in verse, that's for first, look at verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
you know, uh, it's more than likely that the Pentateuch, the five books, the first five books of the Bible were, that were written by Moses were written sometime during the wilderness wandering, probably close to before the time that they're going in to take Canaan. Now, God knows that when they go in to take Canaan, that there's going to be giants. They're going to have to face the Nephilim. And in that ancient culture, they looked at these Nephilim, they looked at these giants as being demigods, as being these eternal beings that had supernatural powers that couldn't be killed and, that, and all of that. And so I believe part of this flood narrative and, and why it's here is God is showing, no, that, that's not the case. They aren't eternal. They can be judged. They will be killed. And you guys could go and kill them too because you're going to be the object of my judgment when they go and take Canaan the same way that the flood is going to be the object of my judgment here in chapter 6. In verse 5, it really shows the end result of the entropy of sin. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Wow, what a sad state of fallen humanity. But that's the truth. Every single human being is born in that state. It's only when we're redeemed that we start to have our mind renewed, our heart renewed and restored, and we're able to start thinking rightly. It's like we're taken from standing on our head to put back up right where we could see right. I think it's interesting. Remember the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to murder Christians and to arrest them and to bring them back to Jerusalem. And he's literally knocked off his horse by this bright light. He's blinded, right? And he's told to go to Damascus and he'll be told what to do there. This guy Ananias has told him a dream to go and visit Saul and pray for him and he'll receive his sight. Ananias is a little hesitant because he knows who Paul is. He tries to talk God out of it and God's like, no, no, no. He's a righteous man. He prays, go and do it. And Ananias is like, fine. And he goes and do it. He finds Saul. He prays for him. And after he prays for him, those scales fall off of Saul's eyes. And it says he looked up and he saw Street Street, right? That the street that they were on was Street Street. And some commentators say it was the first time in Paul's life that he actually saw straight. He was actually able to see rightly because he was in right relationship with the Lord. Number three, the ark is a picture of salvation. The ark is a picture of salvation. Verses uh, 13 through 22, it says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make an ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits or 450 feet. Its breadth, 50 cubits or 75 feet, and its height, 30 cubits, or 45 feet. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of the water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish but I will establish my covenant with you uh, and 
you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And everything that, or in every, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive. You and they shall be male and female of the birds of their kind and of the animals after their kind and the creeping things on the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible. Gather it for yourself and it shall be for you food and food for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. So I see here just a great picture of the way that God saves us. First of all, the ark was God's idea. It wasn't Noah's idea. Hey, this flood's coming, so I'm going to build an ark and maybe we'll survive in it. No, God told him exactly what to do. Salvation began in the mind of God, right? It wasn't a human invention. Number two, there's enough room on the ark for everyone whom God would call. Now, it's interesting, you know, you think, how could all these species, all these animals fit on this ark? This ark is really massive. Actually, if you did the math and worked it all out, you could take the 18,000 species of animals that are on the planet now, you could actually double it, and it would only take up half the space of the ark. There was more than enough space on the ark for two of every animal, for seven of the clean animals, and for Adam and Eve and their six, I'm sorry, Noah and his wife and their six kids. And, and I love that, right? There's, there's more than enough room in Christ Jesus for everyone that Jesus would call to be in him. There's only one entrance to the ark. There's only one way that the animals could get in. It was through the door that the Lord had told Adam to make. There's only one entrance into salvation. It's through Christ Jesus. God is the one who brings the animals into the ark. Did you catch that? It's not like Adam had to go out there and round up two of every animal and force them onto the ark. No, God drew them on the ark. They came on their own and they just filled the ark. They came to Noah for protection. In John 6, 44, Jesus says this, that nobody could come to me unless the Father draws them or drags them to me. The reason that we come to Jesus for salvation is because God draws us. He drags us. He brings us to Jesus to be saved. Lastly, God sealed the ark. He closed the door and he shut them in. And what a picture this is, because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. God has put his seal on us. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 10 that nobody could snatch us out of the Father's hand. Right? Well, we are secure in Christ Jesus. I like what John Corson said about the ark. Uh, it's interesting, this ark being made of gopher wood. He said, not coincidentally, I believe, due to its density and strength, gopher wood, wood was the used wood, was the wood used to make coffins. If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, Jesus declared. Salvation begins with death. It begins when we say I'm dying to self. I no longer demand my own way, but rather give myself completely to you. So God brings everyone on the ark. He closes the door, but then the flood comes. It rains for 40 days. Then there's another 150 days where there's still water coming. The water keeps rising because 
the rain wasn't just coming from above, but it was coming from the deeps of the earth too, that these, uh, from the core of the earth, there was water coming out and flooding the earth. Altogether, Noah and his family are on this ark for 375 days. I can't imagine what the smell of the ark was at this point. The cabin fever, the craziness that Noah must have been facing. But I guess God could give him the strength to persevere as well. But chapter 8, they come out of the ark. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and God is pleased. Point number four, we should care about the earth, but it's not our job to save it. So we should care about the earth, fill in care, and it's not our job to save it. So Adam offers the sacrifice to the Lord from the animals that came out of the ark. Uh, It says this in verse 21, or verse 20, I'll back up. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. The Lord smelled the smoothing aroma and it smelled like tacos los cholos. And the Lord said to himself, I will never curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil, even from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You see that? As long as there's an earth that we're going to continue to have these seasons and God's going to be in control of it. He's going to be the one protecting and keeping the earth. Right? It's not up to us to save the planet. God's in control of the planet. Now, we should take care of the planet. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, a guy named John Stott, said this, that we reveal our love for our creator in the way that we care for his creation. I believe that to be true. But we don't need to go out and take on this whole save the planet mantra because God's going to keep the planet until God ultimately destroys the planet. And it's fire, like Peter tells us he's going to. In chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, God's going to reissue the command to disperse and to fill the earth. They're not going to do it, we're going to see. But then to show that life is valuable, God's going to institute capital punishment. Look at verse 5. Surely I will require your life blood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now, if you think about it, God just destroyed every man that was on the planet except for eight of them, right? So it'd be easy to think that like, hey, life really isn't that valuable. It really doesn't mean that much to God. He's willing to wipe every single person out. But now he's going to issue this law saying, hey, no, 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 life is valuable. These people are created in my image, and anybody that sheds their blood, their blood's going to be shed, a life for a life. And he institutes capital punishment. Capital punishment has been a biblical thing all along. If you kill someone, you forfeit your life. And I think about today, you know, how less violence there might be if people knew that if they killed someone, that they would be killed 
rather quickly, they would forfeit their life as well. But in in verses 8 through 17, God's then going to establish the Noahic covenant. This is the first covenant in the Bible that's mentioned in the Bible. And God promises to never flood the earth again. Does this mean that there won't be judgment? No, next time God's going to use fire. He's not going to use a flood. Peter says so in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. It says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth will be, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God's preserving the world. He's keeping it for destruction, for judgment. The world's not going to be destroyed before that. And no one's going to go on to plant a garden. And he's going to end up, you know, making some grape juice out of this garden. And uh, it's going to be fermented grape juice. And he's going to get drunk. Now, I want to give Noah the benefit of the doubt. Because before the flood, there was this canopy, uh, this cloud layer, that uh, this firmament that went around the earth, that protected the earth. This, this layer of water. And I think because that was there, the vegetation that grew before wasn't able to ferminate in the way that it did here. It wasn't able to turn to alcohol. So I didn't think Al- Noah knew that by drinking it, he was going to get drunk, but he gets drunk and he passes out in his tent. And his brother, Ham, sees his father's nakedness. And he gets excited. He runs off and he tells his brother, Shem and Japheth, about it. Now, Shem and Japheth, they do the right thing. They grab a blanket and they walk backwards so that they don't see their father's nakedness and they cover their father's nakedness. They're being their brother or their father's keeper here. But because of this, Noah pronounces a curse on the descendants of Ham. The people that come from Ham, the Canaanites, are going to be cursed. It says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. God's going to judge the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites. They would be judged hundreds of years later when God would command the children of Israel to go in and conquest the land of Canaan, the promised land, and slaughter all the Canaanites without pity. Now, it's important to remember or to note, though, that the Canaanites weren't judged because of Ham's sin. Right? That's not why God commanded them to be wiped out. Right? That would completely violate Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 is all about how God doesn't judge the son because of the sins of the father or the father because of the sins of the son. It says this in Ezekiel 18, the persons whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You see, the Canaanites are going to be utterly wicked people themselves. And that's what's going to cause them to enter the judgment of God. God promises Abraham the land 
then he's going to have to wait 430 years for his descendants to get the promised land because they're going to have to wait for the iniquity of the Amorites to become full before God will allow the judgment to come. God's going to be extremely patient. You could go back and read Leviticus 17, 18, 19, and you'll see just how wicked the Canaanites would become. You'll see what God is judging them for. And this prophecy or pronouncement of judgment really becomes the basis for chapters 10 and 11. So for letter D, fill-in, God confuses and scatters the rebels. So confuses is the fill-in. We see this in chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10 is what we call the table of the nations. We're going to see that from Noah's three sons, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, there's going to be the whole world is going to be populated. Seventy nations are going to come from them. Shem would become 26 people groups. Ham would become 30 people groups. And Japheth would become 14 people groups. But the problem is that the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are all in one place. And that's what's going on in Genesis 11. They won't spread out. God had told them to flee and to populate the, the earth and to, to spread out. And they wanted to stay in one place. Chapter 11 begins, now the whole world, earth, used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. That's Babylon. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used the bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they came, or they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad all over the face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have the same language and this is what they will begin to do. And now nothing will be, uh, nothing with which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad all over the face of the whole earth. They wouldn't scatter, so God scattered them. Right? I mean, that was a, a, a problem for the church even. Remember, God says in Acts 1.8 that when his spirit comes upon them, that he would make us his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The problem was the church was just happy hanging out in Jerusalem. They were happy in their holy huddle, right? And they weren't going to scatter. They weren't going to obey God. So God used Saul and created this persecution of the church to make the church scatter, to make them flee for their lives, and ended up where God wanted them to be. You know, we love church. We love fellowship. We love being together. And God wants us to. He commands us to come together for certain times, you know, Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, some of us. But we don't need to stay there. We need to scatter throughout the week. How else are people going to hear about the Lord? How else is the gospel going to be spread if we're all just hanging out together? You know, the Puritans, they had this saying that I really loved. They said sanctification wasn't complete until you could go back into the world and remain unstained from it, right? It's not enough just to separate yourself from the world. 
No, we need to be able to go back in it and to represent Christ without being stained by it. I think Christians fail in one of two ways. Most Christians I know. One, they never separate themselves from the world. They confess Christ, they get saved, and they just continue living the way they were, and they end up living a carnal Christian life. Or they separate, and then they distinguish themselves from the world, but then they never really go back into the world. There's no engagement with the world, right? They just sit there and call everything worldly and make fun of everything, and you know, and they become the Pharisees, right? But Jesus, he left heaven, right? He didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and a man and, and came into the world. And, and, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among sinners. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to need to do the same thing. Yeah, it's more comfortable being here with Christians, right? but that's what heaven's for. We have all of eternity to do that, right? God right now has us in the world so that we could be salt and light. But the only way we're going to be salt and light in the world is if we're in contact with the world. But what was their big error? Part of it was not scattering like God told them to, but their big error really was pride. Look at verse four. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. You know, they started making bricks and, and I read that they would uh, inscribe Marduk, the, the Babylonian God on each brick as they're building this ziggurat up into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They're saying, hey, let's stay here. Let's build a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to have to do what God told us to do and be scattered all over the earth. Wow. You know, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride is a dangerous place to be. We need to watch out for pride. Pride is especially dangerous because we tend not to see it in ourselves. Right? Pride is the one sickness that you have that everybody else could see it except for you. I've never met a proud person who says, yeah, I'm proud. <laughs> you know? I haven't. But we all have the tendency to be proud. I mean, that's, that's part of our fallen nature. We all have a little bit of a narcissist inside of us, if we're willing to admit it or not. So what do we do about that? Well, we pray, God, search our heart. Search us, O oh Lord. Let us know if there's any evil way in us. One thing I like to do, I try to do this once a week, but I haven't been so faithful with it, is I go on these prayer walks, usually a longer walk once a week for a few hours, and, and I search myself. I literally go through the Ten Commandments, one commandment at a time, and I ask God to search me. And I start looking for, hey, is there, is there any idols in my life? Have I created any images? Am I using the Lord's name in vain? Am I honoring my father and mother? You know, and, and am I keeping the Sabbath? I start going through the Ten Commandments and really searching myself, and God starts drawing that out and showing me all the ways that I'm in error. But then he grants me repentance, and he builds me back up. Yeah, there's a couple blocks where I'm broken, and I'm crying going down the street, and everybody's like, what's wrong with that guy? Or they're like, man, this guy's talking to himself. He's kind of nuts, but I don't care. I'll be full for the Lord any day, right? But, but we need to be aware that, that we have that same inside of us, that when God says to go scatter, we're going to say, no, I want to stay here, and I want to build a city for myself. I want to build a kingdom for myself. 
I don't want to build the kingdom of God. I don't want to be where God placed me. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to build a name for myself. And we need to watch out for that. Our chapter ends with the genealogy of Shem taking us to Abram. In the beginning, he's going to be the beginning of the four great men that we'll start to cover next week in chapters 12 through 50. But that's Genesis 1 through 11, the beginnings. We saw the four great acts. We saw the, uh, the you know, the God uh, created, right? We saw the fall and we saw the condemnation and we saw the confusion. The four great acts in Genesis 1 through 11. Let us pray. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that you'll take this and help it make sense to them. I hope it did, Lord. I hope it was edifying and encouraging and comforting, Lord. But I, I pray that it will help us to read and understand your Bible in a way where we could get more out of it and be readers and studiers and teachers and doers of your word ourselves, Lord. God, you desire for all of us to be teachers. There's somebody who knows less Bible than we do, and I pray that you'd put them around us so that we could share that and we could share your word the way that you have called us to. But I thank you for everybody here. I pray that you'd bless them, bless the rest of the week. I pray you'd put people in front of them that they could tell about the coming judgment and the way of escape through Jesus Christ, Lord, that they could talk about the flood and you, you know, rapturing Enoch and preserving Noah and his family through the flood and all of that. And I pray that you would bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ through that. I thank you for this group. I thank you for this new season. I thank you what you're doing through us, Lord. And, and we commit the rest of our weeks and time to you, Lord. May you be our God. May you be our leader. May you be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.